Welcome to The Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. How's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as I do each and every week. This is episode 127. I hope each and every one of you guys are having a great week out there. We are now at the end of April 2021. Um, Summertime's coming on full. I just want to say something that I've noticed here over the last couple of weeks is that live music is slowly returning. Lots of festivals announcing their lineups this week. Really excited about that. I am going to do my level best to get out to as many of those things as I safely can and get interviews uh, with the guys and girls that are on the road this summer um, and hopefully have a lot more content for you. Uh, over the coming months. Uh, That being said, we have a fantastic interview for you today. I am going to be joined by the great Cam Tyler uh, from the band Cryptic Cadet right after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand, and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned before our break there, we're going to be joined by Cam Tyler of Cryptic Cadet today on the Drum Shuffle. Um, Cam is a native of Delaware, and he now makes his home in Las Vegas. Um, And I, I just want to say this before we get into anything else. Uh, He does some work with Cirque du Soleil. If you are familiar with the music of that show at all, you already know this guy has monster chops. Uh, I I just can't even begin to put into words how incredibly difficult that gig is. 
and he is doing uh, a lot of the fill-in work for Cirque du Soleil in Las Vegas right now. Um, but Cam, uh, his path has brought him now to where he is part of a production duo uh, running uh, you know, a, a studio in Las Vegas. They do a lot of producing, um, and these guys are, are monster musicians. Uh, but they recently decided that they were going to do their own record. And, you know, I call it a pop fusion record. Uh, but the band's name is Cryptic Cadet. And when I listened to this, I was absolutely blown away. So we had to get Cam on the show to talk all about it. I know you're going to get a lot out of this. So please help me welcome to the drum shuffle, Cam Tyler. Hey, good afternoon, Cam. How's it going, brother? Hey, Jamie, it's going really well. How about yourself, man? Man, it's uh, it's a Friday, so we're recording this on a Friday. So the work week is over, you know. <laughs> so everything is good. Great, yeah. I'm excited to jump into the weekend too. Yeah, for sure, man. Well, I'm sure you probably have some gigs going on this weekend. You you've got something happening, right? You are correct, sir. I do. I'm I'm actually living in Vegas, and things are starting to slowly come back here. Uh, I have a wedding gig this weekend, and preparing for a couple road dates coming up, uh, one in Denver next week. Okay, cool. Well, so you said you had a wedding gig this weekend, so I'm assuming you've brushed up on uh, your brick house and brown-eyed girl chops today, Yeah, right? a, few, a few things like that, sure. Yeah, there's this <laughs> crooner guy that I've been doing a few little things with, and that's sort of a popular thing in Vegas is the... Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin stuff. So going to be swinging a little bit this weekend. Cool. Good deal. Well, I, I always poke fun. You know, I've done enough wedding gigs that I know if you, if you can't do brick house and brown eyed girl, you're fired. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> this is the truth. <laughs> it's, it, it's kind of an inside joke on the show here. So, uh, but I, I'll spare you anymore, but thanks so much for taking the time, man. We really do appreciate it. Um, as is kind of our tradition here on the drum shuffle, let's let's start at the beginning. I know you're originally a native of Delaware. Um, tell everybody, you know, kind of how you came up, where you're from, how you got into drumming to begin with. Do you come from a musical family? Yes, actually, I do. So it sort of skipped a generation with me. My grandfather was, uh, my dad's side was a uh, accordion player. And I used to just sit there and watch him for hours when I was an infant. So my parents realized, hey, we should probably get this kid some violin lessons or something. So they put me in violin when I was four, piano when I was six. And the drumming came actually from my piano teacher's son, who used to, they used to play together quite a bit, um, his dad and his son. And when I saw his son playing, I realized, oh man, that's, that's what I want to do. I, I just look, I saw what he was doing and saw the motion and the emotion that he was bringing um, to the instrument. And it just kind of struck a chord with me. Light bulb went off and one thing led to the next. And my mom let me have a drum set as long as I kept playing piano. So, oh, that's where so I, it was the, <laughs> the barter system there, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. My mom, if you know her, she's definitely good at that type of, uh, that type of thing. She's a barter maniac. <laughs> I got you. Well, I, you know, 
I, I think every kid that goes to their parents and says, I want to be a drummer, the parents are like, please, anything but that, right? I mean. Oh, yeah. Definitely. They weren't too pleased at first, but, you know, they said, if you really work hard and uh, practice and do everything that you can do, we'll entertain the idea. Okay. Well, I mean, that's cool. So, so you were, uh, you started at a young age is what I'm trying to uh, spit out here. Um, yeah. Did, did you do formal lessons and, and all that good stuff? Yeah, I did. So I would go over to my piano teacher's house in Delaware where I would on the weekends do my 30 minute piano lesson. Then his son would come in. He was maybe four years older than me. So he was a, he was a young guy too. He was about 14. And we would just sit down. I'd be looking forward to that lesson during that piano lesson. I'll tell you what, I was like, oh, I cannot wait to get behind those drums and <laughs> learn some Eminem hip hop groove that he was working on or something. He would just kind of show me different things he'd be working on. And sometimes we'd jam too with his dad on piano. He had a piano there and some keyboards and an in-home studio type of thing. So we, it was a lot of fun. I got gotcha. you. Well, now, so I'm curious, and and there is a definite, you know, geographic thing here. But you know, a, a lot of our guests that we have on, especially if you grew up in the South or the Midwest, there was a, a huge, you know, kind of marching band influence for a, a lot of those guys and girls. Was that a thing in Delaware, or was it more of a pep band for basketball? Those sorts of things. All of the above. Yeah, my school had a pep band, so I got to get involved with that. That was a lot of fun where I'd play drum set and the wind ensemble would be playing We Will Rock You and different things like that to get everybody hyped up at basketball games. And the marching band thing is actually pretty big in Delaware too. There's a band, uh, the AI DuPont High School band that goes and plays at the Rose Bowl every year, and they're really, really good. Okay. Yeah. And actually what I ended up doing was I got recruited to another high school's drum line. It wasn't AI, so it wasn't as intense of a thing, but I didn't know how to play uh, traditional grip. So I went in there having the ability to read music, but I didn't know how to play traditional and they were very strict about that. They wouldn't let me play match. <laughs> so I went in there and, you know, a few blisters later was able to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I've been playing 30 years and I still don't know how to play traditional grip. Right. You, you know what I mean? I think it's, it's one of those things that's either drilled into you or it's not, you, you can't be, you know, uh, how do I say this? You can't half-ass traditional grip, right? It felt very unnatural, un unnatural to me. Yeah, and it's really difficult. You got to really dedicate yourself to that if that's, you know, the thing you want to do. But it was a great learning experience and it was really hard to be out in the sun rehearsing in the summertime in Delaware with that snare drum on you and weighing you down and you're just chugging water at every opportunity you can just to just to keep going. Yeah, for sure. Well, so you know, during this time, I mean, at, at what point did the the young 
Cam Tyler say, I really want to kind of chase this music thing as uh, as a vocation. Did that happen early on or was it, you know, during your high school marching days? When, when did you decide I'm really going to chase this? Jamie, man, it was really early. I actually got a band together when I was 12 with a buddy of mine nice. from my school. And we started playing gigs semi-professionally at age 12. Uh, we were playing nice. at different parties and I was playing piano and drums. And sometimes I was even playing key keyboard drums because they wouldn't let us have loud drums at certain gigs. It was, it was sort of yeah. a funny thing, but uh, it was a great learning experience. And I loved working with bands and playing live and performing. And when I was in high school, I met this kid who was basically a clone of Stevie Ray Vaughan, the guitar player. He was like a blues oh, sure. guitar player. And yeah. this kid, this kid could just rip. And I knew that, hey, maybe we can get something going here. And next thing I knew, we were gigging around quite a bit. So that was when I was about 15 or 16 is when we started that band. Okay, cool. So, so I mean, it's just been in you. You've never known a life outside of it, essentially. Exactly. And I got to say, too, my, my parents are, have been super supportive, and I got really lucky having their support. And they've always been there to encourage me and uh, basically tell me, hey, this is something you need to do, and we believe in you. Yeah, man, there's, there's, you know, I, I could go on and on about what a saint, you know, my mother was because she listened to that crap for four or five hours a day. And, and, and you know, when you're a beginning drummer, it sucks. So let's just face it. Right. I mean, it's, oh, yeah, for <laughs> it's, you it's, and everybody around you. <laughs> ex exactly. So, um, you know, I, to have that support, I think, is so incredibly important. And if you don't have it, you know, I mean, we've had conversations on this show with many, many folks where it's like, well, what's your backup plan? You know, because chasing a career in music isn't good enough. Like they just assume you're going to fail at that. Right. Um, so having the support system is is uber important to me anyway. Yeah, I feel like. I was definitely at an advantage having them and their encouragement and them driving me to gigs before I could drive and yeah, just being there and getting their friends involved and whatever and opening up some opportunities, introducing me to some people. Neither of them are musicians themselves, but uh, I'm, I'm lucky even with the stuff that they've shown me that kind of opened my eyes. Like my dad, he showed me, uh, I remember when he bought these two albums that he used to have on vinyl and he bought them on CD because he had gotten rid of his vinyls. And the two that really were huge for me were uh, Earth, Wind & Fire, Greatest Hits, and the second one was Steely Dan, Asia. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's that's some good drumming there. No. <laughs> No doubt about it. Oh um, man, uh, those those records to this day, you know, just blow my mind for real. Yeah, I and you know, I mean, I think especially if you caught on to that as a youngster, you know, e even if you could get just a fraction of that wavelength, 
right? Like if you could just barely grasp a little bit of it, you knew it was something special. You know, um, I just, I don't think anybody can ever fully decipher that stuff, no matter how good they are, because it was just so magical. Yeah, it was just sort of shock and awe. I couldn't stop listening to it. And this was sort of in the days before YouTube. So I couldn't really, there was still some mystery about what was going on with yeah. with everything. There wasn't an explanation of, oh, here's how this groove is played, played by 500 different people on YouTube. I yeah. couldn't just like go and look that up. It really right. was an exercise in ear training. Yeah, I mean, I look, and, and again, I could get on my soapbox here. I'm not going to, but, you know, I I was born in the late 70s. You know, the, the internet wasn't a thing until I was already out gigging and, and you know, half-assed touring with bands, you know. Um, it, it was just a different way to have to learn. Like, you had to listen to the record over and over and over again until you could decipher it. It's... It's just different now. And I, I don't mean that to sound like get off my lawn, kids, but it was, you know, it was a very different way of having to learn stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. You really had to internalize it and use your ear to pick out those little ghost notes and just the little nuance that, you know, if you're listening to Asia and you're listening to Steve Gadd playing that stuff and, it's just that stuff that he does is just the swag and his groove and the pocket and everything is. And then he's, he's also listening to so much that's going on around him and complimenting uh, everybody that's on that track and out of, he's out of the way, but also in the forefront somehow at the same time, it's kind of a magical thing. That's hard to explain. Yeah, man. I mean, there's only about, you know, what, 30 million of us that are still trying to figure out how to do that <laughs> adequately, right? <laughs> Is how do you, how do you be a lead drummer and stay out of the way? It's, I, I agree. It's magical. Yep. hundred percent. So, um, so you're, you're gigging, you know, you're, you're a young guy, uh, you've decided you really want to chase this. And, you know, I, I read in the, the band bio and we'll get into cryptic cadet here in just a minute, but I read in the band bio that you ended up going to college in Boston and I, I saw that sentence and I was like, oh, he went to Berkeley, but that's not the path you chose. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So it was pretty interesting. The guys that I was in the band with in high school, they all went to Berkeley after high school. And that was not really on my radar at all. I wasn't really ready to jump into an education that they commit to something like that or a four-year type of degree. So what I did, I actually went to the Drummers Collective in New York. Uh, right out okay. of high school, because I didn't actually know if I even wanted to go to college. I really couldn't find a college that I could identify with. So my high school drum teacher, who was also the band leader at the school that I went to, hipped me to the Drummers Collective. And so I did a full-time program there, which was completely life-changing for me, where I learned basically how to cover a multitude of different styles in a very short span. And yeah. that was a that was a huge stepping point 
which led me to end up, I ended up in Boston because, you know, I had a bunch of friends, my buddies in my band in high school were there and I ended up living with one of my buddies there. And, uh, I just wanted to be involved with music. And I knew that there was a lot of young people pursuing music at a very high level in Boston. And I even lived right across the street from Berkeley. So most people actually thought that I was going there. <laughs> of course they did. They're like, who's so, that kid? I haven't seen you in class. <laughs> who, who the hell are you? And why are you playing in this ensemble? <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Now, I, you know, you may not want to date yourself, but what, what was the time period that we're talking about here? If you don't mind my asking. Oh, no problem. It's, it was 2007 is when I okay. moved to Boston. Okay. Yeah. All right. The, the so, dead of winter, you know, in, in New England. Yeah, that that's an experience in and of itself. Um, so, so 2007. You're you're a young cat. You're you're a lot younger than me. But you know, at this time, you know, in Boston, I mean, Berkeley is already known for being kind of well. I mean, obviously, it's one of the great music schools in the world, but you know, just some of the names that had passed through a decade before, you know, you've got McCartney's drummer, Abe Laboreal Jr., um, you know, Mike Portnoy from Dream Theater, uh, Mangini had been there, uh, Nate Morton, who's on The Voice. I mean, it's literally a who's who of, of drummers, right? So um, it, it's just kind of in the water there, isn't it? I would say so. You know, you get around different guys and you have an opportunity to see a lot of cool performances, see, seeing it up close and personal and experiencing it firsthand. That's really where you learn the, the best. And I feel like you have to just put yourself there. It, it helps so much. You, you can learn so much more than just getting online and, and, or looking in a book. I feel like that's so much, so many of my best memories and life-changing experiences were seeing music live, experiencing something happen and, you know, sometimes being moved to tears because it's so powerful. Yeah. Yeah, man. And, you know, I, we now refer to that as the good old days, right? I mean, <laughs> we've totally. all been <laughs> cooped up and locked down for so long. We, we, we all pray for live music to return on a, on a grand scale. Uh, it can't get here quick enough. Right. Um, now, at some point, and I don't want to gloss anything over here, but, you know, I'm just trying to go chronologically. At some point, you decided to make the trek out west to L.A. Um, what was going on during that time? So I was finishing a marketing degree, actually, at Emerson College while pretending to go to Berkeley, <laughs> I guess you can say, <laughs> hanging around okay. with hanging around with kids that went to Berkeley, playing, subbing on their ensembles when guys got too busy doing other stuff, um, doing all that. And by the time I was almost done my degree, I realized, hey, I should probably go out to L.A. because I'd been going there uh, basically throughout my life, visiting there, visiting family. My grandmother lives in L.A. So I was basically dead set on moving to LA, which I did. And the cool thing about it was I was able to finish my degree out in LA because Emerson has a program out there. Um, there's a lot of film students 
that oh, go okay. out there to jump into the film world. So it's sort of like a transitional program to finish up in LA and then bam, you're there and you can get a job right away. I got gotcha. you. Okay. That's cool. So, so you land in LA, um, which is, that's quite the undertaking for any musician, you know, to, to, <laughs> you know, step off the bus, step off the plane, whatever, and be like, okay, here I am. I got to start playing. That's hard, man. It is. I, man, I have really been so blessed in so many ways to have uh, family, some family in the industry. Um, for example, my uncle's brother, unrelated, not, well, I guess related by marriage, um, but he is a studio owner in Los Angeles in the Valley. And I actually have been going to hang out in his studio. Uh, it's called Studio City Sound. I've been doing it all my life. Like one time I got to meet Josh Freeze in a drum session uh, when nice. I was about 13 or 12. And I've got pictures, like old pictures of me hanging out, eating micro microwave burritos with Josh Freeze. And it's just, <laughs> that was one of the coolest experiences I've ever had was witnessing a true studio uh, cat, you know, like him yeah, come in there. And it was like when he was, I just remember watching him play through sitting in the control room, watching him play through this mirror or the, the glass. And he was just effortless. Everything that he did was just like magical. And my jaw was dropped. Like I couldn't even, it's, it made sense, but it was also just intriguing to me. And I was like, man, I'd love to figure out how to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a really cool experience that I had in LA early on. And that was, those memories are part of the reason why I wanted to get out there and have more memories like that. And, you know, coincidentally, there's a lot of uh, cats that were my age from Berkeley that I knew that I'd made friends with that were moving out to LA as well. And so when we, I had a sort of an alliance with a really close buddy of mine. Uh, his name is Noah Shy, and he went to Berkeley for engineering, and he was also an organ player. And he came out to LA almost immediately after I did, and uh, he was trying to start a studio with some guys, uh, with actually this one buddy of his who went to Berkeley, and the deal fell through. And when it did. He, he said, hey, man, I've got all this gear and you've got this practice studio at your house that I was renting um, with some friends. How about we set up a studio there and you guys can use it for whatever you want and here's all this gear. And I said, well, I don't know how to use any of it, but <laughs> sure, let's do it. <laughs> well, I, that's pretty fortuitous because, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, what you're doing now, you're, you're producing a lot and, and engineering a lot. So, so this was really you getting your feet wet on the other side of the glass, so to speak. Yeah, I was moving out to L.A. to become Josh Freeze. Uh, but then I realized <laughs> there's so many of those guys that, uh, you know, it's just really a tough place to make it in that capacity. So as soon as I had this studio set up, 
I was lucky enough to have Noah basically walk me through how to get going on Pro Tools and how to get going on Logic. And yeah. those those skills are probably one of the things that I would recommend for all drummers to know how to use as a DAW and record yourself. And I can't tell you how life-changing it was seeing those waveforms in relation to the grid, that musical grid that you see and yeah. how much you learn about yourself and also the heightened awareness that you gain from recording yourself, seeing it, fixing it, trying it again, repeating and being confident in operating that software that definitely made a huge impact on me and definitely wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if it wasn't for that. Yeah. I mean, I, I can vividly recall my first recording experience and, you know, I was a high school kid and, you know, we were, you know, making demo tapes. Right. And, you know, my best friend, the guy that played bass in my band for, for so many years, and we still collaborate a lot to this day is a recording engineer. You know, he went to school for recording engineering. And, um, you know, I just remember the first time that we ever recorded, you know, I thought I was okay. I didn't think I was the greatest drummer in the world, but on that first playback, you know, I can remember just going, oh man, this was bad, you know, (laughs) and it, it forces you to learn how to think a bit differently in your playing. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely does that for you. I, I really think it heightens that, that awareness and, uh, it makes you kind of find your place in the music and, uh, have that, that courtesy to make everybody sound better. Uh, because when, when you hear yourself and it sounds bad, then it's like, okay, well, what can I do to improve that and actually turn it around and make it sound great? And that's yeah. the, that's the never ending uh, question that I'm always kind of asking myself even now. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I just, you know, I've said it a billion times on this program. Sometimes it's not about the notes you play. It's about the ones you don't. That makes all the difference. Amen. You know, I mean, I just, I, I just think that there's, you know, there's a time for silence from the drummer. And, you know, if you can figure that out and make that work for you, you, you will stay employed for a long time, you know? Oh, yeah. There's many guys that I can think of that have done that. They don't need, that don't need chops to be able to pay the bills. You know, they just play two and four and make it feel ridiculously good. Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, I mean, I, I, I think you found out, I jumped down every rabbit hole that I see in these interviews, um, you know, <laughs> for better, for worse, but, you know, I, just in the, in the interest of keeping keep moving here. Yeah. Um, so, LA, you were there for how long? I was about six or seven years, I would say. Okay. Now, my curiosity, and again, I don't want to gloss anything over, but you know, you you played with some folks in LA. Um, you know, feel free to name drop if you'd like. You don't have to. But was it was it Cirque du Soleil that that caused the move to Vegas from LA, or or am I jumping way ahead here? Oh, you're jumping a little bit ahead um, because actually I didn't have a gig when I moved to Vegas, actually. Oh, okay. Um, 
Yeah, but in LA, I was lucky enough to do a few major label gigs. Uh, that was really what my end goal was by moving there. I just wanted to be on tour and be on the big stages and play for the big artists. And I was lucky enough to do a few tours like that. Uh, one of the artists was uh, Sky Ferreira. And uh, then there was another one named B. Miller, who I was on tour with. And, uh, you know, we did... The, those gigs are interesting because, you know, it's kind of like this, everybody assemble really fast and have these crazy experiences together traveling, sometimes internationally. And you're sort of at the mercy of the crazy life that is the artist. And uh, sometimes you know, for better or for worse, sometimes those experiences can be long or short. For me, they were, they were both pretty quick. Um, but, you know, I learned a lot and I met a lot of great people doing those gigs. And um, there's been just so many little random other gigs that, that I did. One, one really noteworthy one, uh, I was really lucky. And uh, basically, I've been mentored by this L.A. studio drummer producer uh, named Tony Bronigal uh, since I've, I was probably about 18. So, and to this day, he, I still call him my mentor. Um, and basically, he, he kind of let me in on... Um, he's one of those drummers that I was hoping I could tell you about him because not a lot of guys know, know about him. Um, he's a Grammy Award-winning drummer and producer, um, and he's heavy in the blues scene out there. Uh, and he does a lot of blues records and things like that and works with Taj Mahal. He's worked with Bonnie Raitt, a lot of different people. Um, if you're in the blues, you'll definitely know who Tony is. And yeah, uh, basically, sure. basically, that was another huge reason I, I moved to Vegas, or I moved to L.A. was to be around him and have the opportunity to go into sessions and see what he does because he'd just be inviting me out to sessions to just be a fly on the wall or help him with his drums or do do different things like that and I'd go and see him play quite a bit uh, around doing doing club dates and when he was on tour with Robert Cray I'd go see him play with with Robert uh, that was a really cool cool gig um, when he was on that uh, the blues you know the blues guitar player Robert Cray oh sure of course yeah yeah. So, so he was in that band for, for quite a bit for, you know, a few years, probably about five years, I think. Um, but I, what ended I'm up certain, happening? I, I, not to interrupt, but I'm no, certain good. that that I've seen him play, um, you know, for a, a brief period of time. I live down in Memphis. And, you know, if you're in Memphis, you're involved in the blues. If you're a musician, if you want to work, you know. Um, and I'm positive that I saw him come through there, uh, several times actually. So I, I'm familiar, but I, I just, I can't place the face right now, but I definitely know the name. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely finds himself in Memphis a lot. I think there's the blues music awards that are there every year. Correct. Yes. And, and he goes there. Um, but I was going to tell you about one gig that I would have never gotten unless it was for him. And it was working with this, Zydeco fiddle player out of LA and her name is Lisa Haley. Um, and we, the first gig that we did, actually the, it was the second gig technically, but she called me and was, and said, Hey, 
Tony gave me your number. Do you want to go to Africa? <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> yeah. And it was like, I don't know, a month away and you got to get a tetanus shot and all this stuff. And I was like, Tony, oh. what did you do? Who is this person? So oh. it was, it was actually a awesome experience. And I, I worked with Lisa Haley for, I think about three years solid right up until I moved to Vegas. And we did some international touring, mostly California regional stuff that was specifically Zydeco, which is a, it's sort of a form of, it's like a New Orleans style dance music with accordion and fiddle. And it's really this joyful music. And I had never really been exposed to it until until I met her and the grooves were really intuitive and, and fun. And uh, there was even moments when we were playing on a Zydeco festival where I got to see some guys that were from new Orleans and do see the authentic thing. And everybody, every drummer's played a train beat, right? It's, yeah, sure. it's pretty basic stuff. Um, but when I saw this guy do it, it, he changed the sticking around so that he was basically instead of doing singles, he was playing doubles. He was playing a double stroke. So he was getting the smack of that backbeat on, the le on his left hand. And man, I'm telling you, it makes a huge <laughs> difference. It'll, it'll mind warp you. Now, the, the burning question I have, you're doing Zydeco. Did you get to play the spoons or the washboard? I got to play both. <laughs> okay. So, so well, I was getting ready to say it's not authentic Zydeco unless you've played the spoons or a washboard. Yeah. And if you did both, you're officially a Zydeco musician. Lisa carried around a, a washboard or she would call it a rub board. And the spoons that were, they looked like they were handmade. They were these wooden handles. And there was this gel, like gelatin stuff, like suspending this metal piece that stuck out of that handle. Yes. And they looked like they came out of, of an antique store or something. But she would just carry them around with her. And from time to time, we would have small shows where we couldn't have a drum set in there and... Uh, she just sh showed me a couple little patterns that she had learned um, because she was mentored by some old school Zydeco cats from back in the day. Uh, one of them was called Joe Simeon. And uh, she basically showed me a few little things to do on the rub board and it became a uh, just a unique little thing that we would do once in a while. That's awesome, man. I mean, that's, yeah. that's real authentic music, you know, and, and, I mean, being from Kentucky, you know, obviously we've got bluegrass here and, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's right or not, but I look at bluegrass and Zydeco and Tejano music, you know, any of the traditional, you know, cultural folk musics, I, I, I look at all of them from being from the same vein, if that makes sense. Right. You know, so I, that's awesome, man, that, that, you know, spoons and a washboard, you're, you're authentic as far as I'm concerned. All I'm missing is my uh, jean overalls. 
and I'm yeah, I'll exactly <laughs> just like that guy from the Water Boy. <laughs> yeah, man. Hey, come to Kentucky. I'll, I'll I'll get you fitted for a set. Okay. No problem. I'll be there next flight out. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. We'll, we'll get you some Liberty bib overalls, and you will you will fit the part for sure. All right. Um, well, that, that's cool, man. That you had a mentor that that was willing to say, "Hey, you know, call up Cam." And tell him to go to Africa with you. That's that's pretty crazy, man. That's somebody that that trusts your ability. We have built a pretty amazing bond. I mean, it's basically a father son, but he's not my biological dad. He, you know, we we still keep in touch a ton and see each other whenever we can. He sometimes plays in Vegas, and sometimes I'm playing out in L.A. or coming through there on tour. And we always manage to stay in touch and. He's just opened my my world to so many things that I wouldn't have exposure to at all. Um, one other one that's been huge for me was him getting me hip to vintage drums as opposed to buying like new, brand new stuff. Uh, yeah. I've For a long time, I was like, I want new, I want this thing, and I know what I want. And he's kept saying, Cam, you don't know what you want. <laughs> yeah, and once... His buddy had a drum set for sale uh, that was this Duco 1959 Ludwig that he had found nice. from somebody. Like somebody just gave it to him. And wow. he was like, I've got too many drum sets. Will you buy this? And I was like, I don't know. What is this thing? And to this day, it's probably my favorite drum set to play just for fun. You know, it's, it's a 13 rack, 14 floor, 22 kick matching snare and it's just a vibe and it's because that that wood is just aged and it's got this unique character and it's all this the finish is coming off and I don't even care I just love it and so many people have have commented and said you know that's that's really cool that you've got a real vintage thing going on because it just has that unique character and that that unique sound that you can't get out of new drums so I've kind of gone down this rabbit hole of purchasing over the years, collecting a few different special drum sets from the '60s and that era, and it's uh, it's fun. It's fun, and now that I get to produce a lot from my house and record, and uh, I get to use all these little tools to make it my own little special vibe. Yeah, man. Well, you took the words out of my mouth. Once the vintage drum bug bites, there is no cure, you know, except for another vintage kit, right? I mean, that's the only cure for it. Yeah, I pretty much had to resort to hiding snare drums from my wife. <laughs> that's funny. Um, I, now, I don't know what your affiliation is in terms of endorsements and all that stuff, but Josh Touchton at Ludwig is just one of my best friends. He's a a brother from another mother. And I have made Josh promise that if, if I ever get hit by a bus, the first thing he does is he comes here and tells my wife, Lisa, exactly what everything's worth because it's worth more than what I told her I paid for it. Guaranteed. Right. So, <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah, man. So. Ludwig stuff. I just, I love their snare drums, especially. Um, I'm actually technically a DW and PDP uh, endorsee. And I, okay. I actually use both. Uh, I use both of the, those brands quite a bit with different things. Um, 
But the Ludwig stuff is is interesting, and I own a few of their snare drums, and obviously that one drum set. And one of my buddies was uh, posting. He's getting into uh, his name's Neil Daniels. He's a great drummer in L.A. And he's he was posting these videos of or sorry sound clips of him playing this new raw copper. Or it's not copper. It's a it's a raw brass superphonic. I think, yeah. or it's a black beauty. It's a black beauty that's raw. I think it's unfinished, and I—I I mean, it's a striking look. But it also—I did some research on that drum, and it's got this kind of warmer tone. We've all played black beauties, but this particular one is is a little bit warmer, and that's that's something that really entices me. So maybe someday I'll get to uh, play on one of those. I've never played one in person, but they sound really good. Yeah, Neil was sounding really good on that. Yeah, well, I mean, I so I, we can go down the gear hole here for sure, but you know, I've got you know Black Beauties, I've got Supras, um, and for recording, for me personally, what I have found is the Copper Phonic, you know, which is yes. the you know the the Copper Drum. It has all of the best qualities of the Supraphonic and the Black Beauty, but it has none of the annoyances and and that's too strong a word but like with a black beauty sometimes it's just too bright with the superphonic sometimes it's just too much crack right the copper phonic fits right in the middle of that sonic space so um that's my pro tip for you today check out one of those copper phonics it's it's my favorite snare drum right now uh i don't go anywhere without it Oh man, I am definitely envious of that. That sounds really interesting. And I've been digging on uh, Carter McLean, uh, his stuff that he does with Ludwig. He's got all kinds of unique sonic things that he's bringing out uh, for his little recording sessions. If you've uh, checked yeah, him out before, he's he's great. Yeah, man, he's he is the bee's knees, as we say. Um, you know, and, and the stuff that he did, like with Lion King and and all that stuff. I mean, just an amazing player amazing player so yeah kudos and a re- to- really nice guy too i've gotten to hang with him on a few occasions and he's a really really good cat that's cool man well so I, let's get back to your story um I, the, the vegas thing um you know so i i want to start with cirque de soleil okay um because that's a gig that you've been doing for a while and, you know, I, I was talking to my wife earlier this week and I was like, you know, you, you th- and I'm not trying to take anything away from anybody, but you, you think of these Broadway shows, right? Like w- one of my really good friends is Dina Toriello. Um, and she, uh, you know, when everything shut down, she was doing Little Shop of Horrors in uh, New York with, right. you know, the Broadway kind of thing, you know, that's a hard enough gig. But you've got all these singers on stage that are following the music. With Cirque du Soleil, your job is to follow the performers, right? I mean, it's it's kind of a little bit of a different mindset. That's a really hard gig, man. I mean, did you did you white knuckle it the first couple of nights, or, or were you prepared? They actually did a really good job of preparing me. Uh, they have this phase of integration. It took took me about two weeks to get into the show. And the show that I'm doing is called Ka, and it's at MGM Grand. And it's unique in that the band is seven stories below the stage and in its own separate studio. 
Wow. Basically so you're doing they, everything off, off video cues, I'm guessing. Exactly. Yeah. I was just about to say they've got uh, screens and different things that we watch and react to at different points in the show. And it's, it was a challenge. I mean, the first time I saw the show, just spectating in the studio, sitting there, they've got a little couch next to the drums. And I just was dumbfounded. I said, no way, man. There's no, there's no <laughs> way. Because they're doing time signatures, double kick. They're doing crazy reactive things, electronic triggers, everything under the sun, every style you could imagine. It's, and it's on, uh, Eric Scribner is the main drummer. So I, I'm actually a sub on that show. Okay. Uh, Eric Scribner, this drum set that he has, he's also an open-handed player. So it was fun for me to go in there and just say, you know what? I'm just not going to move anything. I'm just going to try <laughs> to play it like him. <laughs> and because at, that's what everybody's used to that's in the band everybody's 95% of the time it's Eric playing the show so to make them comfortable which is my main goal as a sub I'm just going to go in there and not try to move anything so his ride is set up on the left and his hi-hat basically I would just move the hi-hat up a little bit because he has it down low kind of like Simon Phillips does yeah. a little bit and I would move it up because it just would be impossible to play without that. So, but everything else is somebody else's complete kit. And as soon as I could play the show like that, it just boosted my confidence. You know what? I could just sit down on anybody's kit and make it work. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. It's a lot of guys are really particular about their setups. And I remember when I was young and one little Tom got moved or, or something. It would just totally throw me off. And nowadays, I just don't care. I just want to go in there and have fun and, yeah, and make it feel as good as I can. As long as it's within my abilities, I feel like I've subbed on enough people's other situations where I could pretty much jump in and uh, do any situation like that. It's, it was a really crazy learning curve, but... Uh, it's it's a fun show. Well, you know, the thing that always amazes me, you know, knowing some of these uh, guys and girls that do, you know, Broadway shows, you know, the, the Cirque du Soleil gig, I, to me, I, I think I would be just a nervous wreck because it, to me, it seems like you're juggling chainsaws or something like, you know, what's the next thing that I have to remember to do perfectly in sync with the show? Because yeah. you don't want to drop the ball, right? Right. And if you do drop the ball, the show is going to keep going on. So pick <laughs> right, up the right. ball and keep and keep juggling, <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's going to leave you behind, you know, if you don't. So it's like you can't worry about the mistakes. You just push on. And I mean, I still get nervous to this day doing it. And it's but it's just kind of comes to the territory, Anything could happen. There's been all kinds of crazy stuff that's happened. And uh, for example, the stage has gotten stuck because there's seven moving stages in the show. One time it got stuck and we basically had to keep looping a section. And it was sort of one of the only times we've been able to kind of stretch out and jam. There's like a few little yeah. moments where the band kind of gets to do some jamming and 
improv improvising and uh, this one was actually kind of fun because the MD is giving me calls in in my in ears. He says, "Okay, guys, we're in, we're basically in a hold here, so we need to just keep looping this section. I'm going to keep looping it, and you guys just have fun." And that's what we did <laughs> until he said, "Okay, three, four, one." You know, when, yeah. and you get used to hearing the the cues in your ears, and they give you the show in advance, and that's I basically listened to that on repeat for those two weeks that I was learning the gig and still would afterwards. But, uh, that was, it's definitely like juggling change chainsaws. I would, I would definitely uh, compare it to that. It's not for the faint of heart. Yeah. Well, and it's not like you're just doing, uh, you know, uh, I'll go back to my joke. You know, you're not doing the, the four, four brick house groove, you know, you're, you're really having to play too. You know, <laughs> so. Yeah. It's a workout, man. I get, I'm winded by the end of some of those sections. It just, it gets crazy. And, and then when I'm playing brick house, uh, on tomorrow at that wedding, I'm going to be super thankful that all I have to do is play brick house. <laughs> right, right on, man. Right on. Yeah. Well, so, so is that how you made the connection with Mark? Because I know he's involved with Cirque du Soleil as well. Um, and before you answer that, I just want to say the cryptic cadet bio that I received, that I read, whoever wrote that is a genius. I <laughs> love that bio. I mean, Thank you. I was, I was laughing my tail off reading that thing. Um, but is that how you guys hooked up first? Pretty much. Yes. And, uh, I'm not going to take credit for writing that bio. That was all Mark actually. He is one of the most fantastic writers I've ever met in my life. And he continues to blow my mind on a daily basis with some of the stuff he writes. I mean, you should see our, our text chain. It just gets kind of crazy sometimes. Um, <laughs> well, it, instead of writing show notes for this episode, I think I might just use your bio because it's that good, right? I mean, I think that's maybe what I put out with the podcast. Right. And not a lot of people are shocked by band bios these days. So that's, that was basically our aim was to just <laughs> perfect. See if anybody would notice basically. And, oh. and you noticed. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, I read so many band bios, right? I mean, I'm on all these email chains and, you know, I'm getting bombarded with that stuff every day. And when I see one that is that good? I'm like, oh heck yeah, this is this is gonna be my kind of thing. So it's kudos to you guys. It's brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, and You're I welcome. actually so I met Mark Owen, who's who's my partner in Crypto Cadet. We're we're basically a production duo. And uh, I met him through the bass player from the show Ka named uh, Derek Jones. And Derek uh, he when I met him, I, I was new to Vegas and he, we met through a gig and after the gig, he said, Hey man, do you want to get together and do some playing sometime? And I said, yeah, sure. Let's jam or do whatever. And he said, yeah, I've got a few guys I want to invite over. So one of those guys was Mark and, uh, we just hit it off and I, I showed him a record that I had produced on an artist that I was working with out of, uh, out of LA. And he, I guess he was impressed and we kind of, hooked up because he he too is a bona fide music producer in every way and mix engineer and as soon as we realized we could kind of join forces and had similar goals in what we wanted to achieve 
we started producing records together and one thing led to the next and we i kept bugging him to do that we wanted that uh basically i what we wanted to do was eventually pursue our own music because we we were doing a lot of projects for other people for hire and that's fine and everything but we realized hey this is we'll have complete control of what we're going to do if we just do it ourselves and we've got all the tools and I, I said to him man i don't i don't write lyrics or anything like that and he said well i do and i said really okay well let's do it then and here we are nice well so, you know, I didn't know what to expect. And, I, you know, I've got to be completely and totally honest. You know, I, I wasn't familiar at all uh, until this kind of landed on my desk. And, um, you know, we have the, the mutual friend, Chris, at Two for the Show Media. And Chris was like, hey, check this out. You know, I, I think you'd really enjoy having Cam on the drum shuffle. And, you know, I, I immediately thought, you know, when I read the bio, I was like, okay, we got, you know, some, some producers, some engineers here, uh, both affiliated with Cirque du Soleil. This is probably going to be some really cool avant-garde jazz. So I had that preconceived notion. I put on the record and I was like, oh, this is cool as hell. You know, <laughs> I, not saying that avant-garde jazz isn't, but that's what I was expecting. And, you know, dare I say that it's a, a pop record? I mean, is that fair? A hundred percent. Yeah, okay. that's actually, that was actually kind of why Mark and I really got along is because we sort of shared that passion for that style of production work and that powerful pop thing where it can be relatable for a lot of a, a mass market and we could hear it on the radio we weren't trying to do something that was playing centric but it, it has playing in it but really we focused on the lyric and the melody just making those really strong and memorable and then we just proceeded to have as much fun as we could with it with the rhythm section and with all the sounds that are going on and all the different elements and the people also too that we were fortunate enough to get involved was really happening and we're we're really excited about it well mission accomplished i mean it's really good and and you know as i listen through you know I, and i you know i don't know if joe q public will but you know i could hear the the funk influence i could hear the the rock influence i could hear you know some jazz influence in there dare i say but it's it really is i don't know is is pop fusion a thing i don't know um <laughs> but you know that's that's kind of where my brain went it's it's very listenable and it's groovy man it's really good thank you I, I really appreciate that, Jamie. And, and I can say, too, with confidence that Pop Fusion is a thing. And okay. there, is, there right, is a record in particular that I try to tell a lot of people about. Um, it's by a bass player named Hadrian Ferrod. Uh, he, he's based, he's actually French, but he, I've met him in L.A. And he'd be playing around with all the top call guys and doing the jams and different things like that. And he has this record called Born in the 80s that I would say is about as pop fusion as it can get. 
And it's okay. just and it's stacked with unbelievable players, features from Marcus Miller, Chick Korea, guys of that caliber. And oh, wow. the melodies are pop. Yeah. Well I well, I mean, in this record, you know, the Cryptic Cadet record is um you know, I have to be careful here, but sometimes you get musicians that put out a really um, musician-y kind of record, right? Like all musicians are going to love it. I mean, that, that was the downfall of Rush, right? Three guys that were brilliant musicians that didn't connect with a wider audience than what it did, if that makes any sense, because it was so musicy. <laughs> you know, I I don't know if I'm saying that right or not, but this record is not something that only a musician will appreciate. How about that? Thank you. Yeah, that's kind of what we were going for. We wanted to actually there was a review that recently came out that was talking about Mark's piano playing on the record and the synth sounds and different things. And they say that He's not stating the obvious. Yeah. It's, it's more, but it's still still familiar. You know, it's got a sound that that's familiar and chord changes that are sort of, I don't know, traditional, maybe traditional pop chord changes, but the way that it's executed is in such a way that it's got that jazz influence. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, for sure, man. Well, I mean, it's just... It's incredible, and um, you know I, I would encourage everybody to pick up a copy. Now, is is it going to be in physical format in any shape, fashion, or form, or is this going to be streaming only? We've gone fully digital these days, my friend. We are not going to be printing out any CDs, uh, but it is on pretty much any outlet that you could find. We we even uh, did uh, YouTube two different videos where uh, one's a lyric video and the other one is more like a visualization, vi visual music video. Um, so you can check it out on pretty much any, if you have an internet connection, you can find it anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I always ask about the physical stuff because that typically puts more coins in your pocket, you know? So uh, I always ask the question at least, but um, it, it's out there and, and it's, man, it's, it's just a really good record and I, I would encourage everybody to pick it up. And the website is crypticcadet.com, right? That's it. Okay, perfect. And I, I'm assuming everybody can find what they're looking for there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. There's a, there's a page that has all the music, uh, a link that will take you to a link tree where it'll basically offer you whatever your preferred streaming format is or internet radio or whatnot, Tidal, Spotify, Apple Music. You can find it on, on all the major places. And the record is called Disconnected. Yes, I, I failed to mention that, but it's, man, it's, it's really good. And, and again, I encourage everybody to listen to it. It's, it's very tasty. Now, um, I, I don't want to put too fine a point on that, but I, d I would be remiss if I did not ask this because I, I have a few favorite movies in my life, one of which is the Blues Brothers. And I know there is a connection with not John, but Jim Belushi. 
you played with him for a bit. Is that, am I reading that right? That's correct. Yeah, actually. So this was another Tony connect. Uh, so my, my mentor, Tony Bronigal, longtime blues drummer, he is Jim Belushi's drummer and Jim Belushi has a project and sometimes he does it with with Dan Aykroyd, actually, where they get up on stage and they play corporate events and play like blues stuff and do the whole Blues Brothers thing together on stage. And there was a few conflicting uh, tour dates that Tony had. I guess it was about three years ago. And he said, Cam, can you sub for me on Jim Belushi? And I said, no. where do I sign? I- Absolutely not. I'm I'm busy that day. I'm washing my hair that day. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, let l- let me just say this: if you and Tony both have uh, influenza at the same time, and Jim has a gig, I'll pay you guys to let me sub that one. Okay. <laughs> I will definitely <laughs> definitely keep that in the back of my head, Jamie. <laughs> hey man, you've got my phone number now. Don't don't forget. But I, all all joking aside, I just love <laughs> everything about the Blues Brothers and I mean that would be the epic jam, right? And his band is so badass. It's Oh, I'm sure. Just I went in there and they're like, "Who is this young kid here? Who are you?" I'm like, I'm the drummer. And they're like, oh God, here we go. <laughs> That's you know? funny. But but uh, it, it was fun. They were really, really great, great to work with. And just really top end pro session guys and made it easy. I just sort of slipped in there and again, just went in there with uh, the desire to make it feel good and make sure everybody had a good time. Yeah, man. Well, that's all you can do. So um, I, I want to be respectful of your time. Before we wrap up, talk to me a little bit about your guys' studio. Uh, if you know, if my band wants to come out to Vegas and record with you guys, where can I find some information on your studio? Do you have a website? We don't have a website for the studio. Um, the studio is actually our own private home studios. Okay, and- I got you. And from time to time, we do open open it up for certain clients. And uh, but you can reach out to us via our website. Uh, there's an email address on the website, so you would go to crypticcadet.com, and our email is crypticcadet at gmail.com. And okay, you know, we still are doing a lot of projects for other clients. Uh, there's there's a few blues projects we're doing right now. Uh, with some local artists, and I'm going to be jumping in the studio with a guy from San Diego uh, next week, producing out some new songs for him. And you know, we just like to stay busy and keep our hands on a lot of different projects. But the studio, the way it works is, I've got the studio at my house to do the drums and do the tracking, and then Mark has the studio to do all the mix stuff and additional sounds. Uh, so we kind of jump between each other's studios depending on what needs to happen and it works out really well and people have been really happy with the way things have been turning out so far. So if you guys want to reach out to to us, I mean, we're totally open to have a conversation. Okay, cool, man. That's awesome. Now I I know that you also 
um, do some teaching, or at least you did in the past, are you still taking students? Are you doing lessons currently? I am not. Okay. Okay. Well, I mean, I knew, I knew that you did in the past, so I, I at least wanted to throw it out there just in case anybody was looking to come have a, a lesson, but you know, I know, I know you've got a lot of irons in the fire. You probably don't have a lot of time to do it these days. Nah, yeah, it's it's basically the teaching thing for me has been on and off for many years. And these days it just hasn't been uh, a super priority for me to to push, but there are rare occasions when when I have availability to, to do it and uh I'm not never opposed to to talking to to anybody that's interested and wants to learn about groove or feel or anything Anything non-chops really oriented because I'm not so much a chops guy, but I really kind of focus on space and awareness. Yeah. And it's kind of hard stuff to explain, but for people that appreciate that or recording or anything like that, recording yourself, how to mic yourself, how to mix yourself, things like that. For people that are genuinely curious about that knowledge, I'm an open book. Okay. Well, that's, I, that, and that's good to know. And you may hear some, you know, from some listeners and, and I think that would be cool, you know, for sure. But, um, you know, I, I at least always want to ask, uh, you know, especially in pandemic times, you know, there's a lot of guys that can't tour right now. So all they're doing are, you know, Skype lessons or whatever. So I, I just wanted to ask the question, um, Cam, yeah. before, before we wrap up, um, you know, we ask all of our guests for a good piece of advice. Um, you've just had, you know, so many amazing experiences. You've done so many, you know, just varied gigs. Uh, you know, you're, you're the consummate professional. What would you offer up as a good piece of advice for all of us to take in our, into our day-to-day lives? You've probably heard this one before, (laughs) but I'm going to say it because I really find myself reminding me of this all the time. And that's just being open-minded and being willing to put yourself in a variety of musical situations uh, that'll help you grow. And sometimes those are really uncomfortable situations and Mm -hmm. we've all been there, but that those uncomfortable situations are the ones that you learn from and they lead you down the path of, Hey, I want to do this or, Hey, I don't want to do this. Sometimes it's more important to know what you don't want to do. Yeah. Actually, it's way more important to, to, to know to know that with certainty because then you're pointing yourself in the right direction. Like when the perfect example is when this pandemic hit and I've been talking to my partner, Mark, about doing our own music, we just realized, hey, that's our trajectory. That's what we're going to do. So that's why we made Cryptic Cadet. Um, and we had the time to do it. So it was just the perfect sort of storm. And part of that was just by keeping an open mind and jumping into the deep end on, on everything. Yeah, man. And, you know, we, we all like to, you know, complain about the situation, right? The, the pandemic situation and, 
you know, there's no live music. We, you know, we can't go to a show. We can't play. We can't tour. We, you know, we focus on what we can't do. Right. Right. But in a, in a lot of ways, um, you know, I, I think there is going to be a lot of good that comes out of it, including the cryptic cadet record, right? It reset the clock for all of us. So if, if you just sat around and watched Netflix for a year and you didn't woodshed any, well, then that's on you, right? But, right. you know, I've made, I've made the joke, everybody's going to have a record in 2021. Everybody's going to have a record, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, so with that being said, it was a way for us to all focus on stuff that maybe was ancillary a year or two ago. Well, now we can focus our full energy on that. And, you know, you and Mark did that with Cryptic Cadet. And it turned out great, man. So congratulations to both of you. Really appreciate that, Jamie. Yeah, those are really wise words. I I think that this was a golden opportunity to do something creative that we've been wanting to get off our chest for a while, ever since we've, we've known each other and know, known what our capabilities are. And that's, we just seize the moment. And if you do that every day, you'll be surprised how much progress you'll make. Yeah, man. Yeah. As we say here in the South, from your lips to God's ears, Cam, that's, uh, that's well said. Cam, I've had so much fun having you on the show. We've got to do this again, man. Um, please keep us all posted on everything going on, uh, you know, in, in Cam Tyler world, in Cryptic Cadet world, in just in your world in general. Keep us up to date and we'll have you back, man, anytime uh, your schedule allows. It's an open invitation for you, brother. Really appreciate that. I was thrilled to be a guest and honored. Uh, this is just such a cool show and happy to do it again. That'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, man. Well, we'll, we'll make a point of it. So uh, keep in touch. But thanks so much for your time, brother. I hope you have a good one and we're going to send some folks your way. Okay, Jamie. You have a good one as well. All right. See you, man. Bye. All right, guys and girls, that is going to wrap up episode 127 of the Drum Shuffle podcast. Uh, many thanks to Cam Tyler for taking time out of his busy schedule to come on the show and talk to us uh, all about his career and the Cryptic Cadet record. Uh, I'm serious, guys, go listen to this. It will blow your mind. It's really, really good stuff. Um, next week, I'm going to be joined by the great Michael Waldrop. Uh, Michael's got a new record out as well. Michael has been teaching for many, many years, um, just a, a world-class drummer, percussionist. So you're not going to want to miss that. If you don't want to miss that episode, go ahead and hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you use to listen in to the drum shuffle. We certainly appreciate that. The biggest thing you can do for us is share a link with a friend. I'm going to take just a real quick moment. If you've listened this far, thank you so much. A lot of folks are emailing and asking about the new Apple uh, podcast subscription model and Spotify's subscription model. Uh, and here's what I'm going to say to everybody. The drum shuffle will remain free for as long as I am drawing breath. Um, this is not a money-making venture for me over here, the drum shuffle is essentially me, okay? Uh, I don't have a production team. 
We are a small independent podcast, and I do this for the love of our drumming community. So please don't worry. I'm not going to put this behind a paywall on any platform that will have us. Okay. Um, as long as I am able to produce the show, it will be free uh, for you to consume. And I appreciate you listening. Speaking of emails, we answer every single email that we get over here at the podcast. Uh, the email address is the drum shuffle podcast at gmail.com. Our web address is the drum And you can always find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. Again, thanks to each and every one of you for tuning in and listening to the podcast. We simply cannot do it without each and every one of you doing so. Again, share a link with a friend. We'll talk to you next week, but until then, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. Cheers.